All right, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles back to Revelation chapter 14. Just by way of logistics, um, we looked at <laughs> verses 1 through 5 last week regarding the Lamb and his followers. Next week, we will take a break from Revelation and be in, in Luke chapter 2. I haven't preached on that before, but Luke chapter 2, the prayer of Simeon, I'm looking forward to that. Um, we'll look at that next week. And then the last Sunday of the year, we will look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. And we will take a pause in Revelation, and I will hand off the baton to Mark. He's going to take us into First Thessalonians, right? So looking forward to that. Um, Revelation chapter 14, we're going to look this morning at verses 6 through 13. We're looking at the, the theme of Revelation 14 is the triumph of the Lamb. Part two, which we'll look at this morning, is the three angels that are pictured um, in this section. And I wanted to point out there's a repeated transition. We touched on this last week of pictures between the heavenly throne room as we as John kind of adjusts our view up. We see last week. The picture of the 144,000, that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, victorious, reigning with the Lamb. And now our, our, our view, our focus is kind of turned downward again as we see these three angels in this portrait of the three angels. The reminder is, and, and it's important because we forget this frequently, everything that is seen with our human eye is not all that is going on. God is sovereignly working behind the scenes, even though we can't see it. Um, I also pointed out that the book of Revelation, and this keeps coming up, but the book of Revelation is a book of contrast. This is highlighted for us again as we compare the mark of the beast with the mark of Christ. Last week in the first five verses, we saw the 144,000 who were sealed on their foreheads with the mark of Christ. This is on full display, and we'll touch on this again. Really, the book of Revelation, and, and particularly in this chapter, is giving us a contrast between the destinies of the followers of the Lamb versus the earth dwellers. So we'll look at that this morning. For, for our study this morning, there's three points. We'll look at the first angel and the warning of judgment. We'll look at the second angel and the guarantee of judgment. And then the third angel and the results of judgment. <clears throat> the significance, and let's ask the Lord to lead us before I get too far ahead of myself. Always a good, wise idea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. We thank you for, Lord, the reminder that we have that you are coming back. And as we think about the celebration of the coming week and um, your first advent, the scripture reminds us that you are coming back again and your second coming will be vastly different from the first. We celebrate, Father, the keeping of your promises as we think about the Lord Jesus in the manger growing up fully God, fully man to be the perfect mediator who offers himself upon the cross to be the salvation of his people. Lord, we, we know that you have kept your word and that he is the fulfillment of your promises. We also know that you're coming back to judge this world. 
I pray, Lord, as we consider that subject matter this morning, that, that, that if there are any here this morning who do not know you, that you will work in their hearts, that you will give them life, that you will give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, that if they are concerned for their souls, that they will be pointed to Christ, who is the answer for that concern. We ask that you would help us this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is the significance of three angels? Well, this should not be lost on us. Is it, it takes us back, if you recall, when we studied the seven trumpets. Um, turn back just a few pages to Revelation 8.13. And Revelation 8.13 gives us a reminder. This is a an elaboration of that statement that, that John makes in Revelation 8.13 when he says, I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Remember the triple woe we talked about? Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Triple repetition. Why? Why do we see it in scripture? Emphasis. Emphasis, yes. It is a, a verbal communication of emphasis, something to grab our attention. We're, we're very familiar with the declaration in Isaiah 6 of the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. As Isaiah is confronted with the holiness of God, as he sees the train of God fill the temple high and lifted up, and, and the resulting acknowledgement of his sinfulness as he's confronted with the holiness of God, we see that repeated for emphasis. And here it is with the three angels. It's, this is an elaboration of the pronouncement of woes or judgment on the earth dweller. I want you to see this morning as we look at the, these three angels that this is a contrast of destinies. Last week, we studied the eternal destiny of the saint. What is that destiny? They're going to reign with Christ. Some already are on Mount Zion, victorious over sin, death, and hell. But what about the earth dweller? Well, the three angels deal primarily with the judgment that befalls the earth dweller, the difference in, if you will, their destiny. This is also a telescopic view. We start more broadly with the first declaration of the angel, then we, we focus in and we hone in on the purveyors of idolatry. We'll get introduced to a new character, if you will, this morning, which is that of Babylon. First mention we have in the book of Revelation, um, we'll delve into Babylon much, much deeper as we progress, especially in chapter um, 16 and 17 and beyond. We'll talk a little bit about that, but it, it focuses in Babylon is pictured here as a purveyor of idolatry. And then lastly, we tend to think of those who um, are under the teaching and the belief of false teachers as victims. Scripture paints a much different picture. What does scripture tell us? That in the last days, men will heap to themselves teachers, what? Having itching ears. The unbeliever, although religious, wants to hear what he or she wants to hear. They're not victims. And the picture that, that 
we see in Revelation chapter 14 is one of judgment on those who know and reject and actively suppress the truth. So let's let's dig into the first angel here, verse 6. John says, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to those to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. John says he sees an angel flying directly overhead. The location of the angel is unmistakable. We talk about an angel flying directly overhead. What is John saying here? He's this angel is is not to be missed or ignored. This is impossible to dismiss. He is directly overhead. The message of the angel is unmistakable. It's also unignorable, if I might create a word. He says with a loud voice. The scripture says here. And then the other thing I want to point out about this this first verse here in our study, verse six, that the recipients of the angel's message is clear. Who is the message directed to? Who specifically is the message directed to? It says to those who dwell on the earth. Who is the earth dweller? This is a description of the character of the unbeliever here. Okay, we've seen this as we've studied through there is a contrast, again, of those who dwell with the Lamb on Mount Zion, those who are heaven-bound, and those who are earth-bound. The earth-dweller are the unbelievers. So the message is to those who dwell on the earth. And this is a picture of the bitter message that we saw John explain in Revelation chapter 10 when he ate the little scroll. Remember what it said in verse 8? Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must, again, prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Well, here's the expansion of that prophecy. And this is a picture here of the great paradox of the gospel. Well, what do I mean by that? The gospel in the Greek is evangelon in the Greek. What does that mean? Good news. Well, what is good news for some is not good news for others, is it? Here is the picture of that paradox that we see. We have the same message being preached. That is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only mediator between God and man, as jo Jesse um, taught us this morning. But there are two completely different effects, aren't there? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Verse 18, Paul says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Same message, same gospel, different response. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly. The King James Version uses the term foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Listen, verse 22, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel is a great paradox for the believing. It is sweet for the unbelieving. It's bitter. The same Jesus that's proclaimed in the gospel of scripture Different responses. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I would ask you this morning as we think about this, what is Christ to you? What is Christ to you? 1 Peter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the nation of Israel at his first advent. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. We hear the words of the Heavenly Father echo. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. He is chosen and precious. You yourselves, verse 5 of 1 Peter 2, you yourselves like living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see the illustration that Peter is using here? The Lord Jesus Christ is, is seen and, and exemplified two different ways here in this passage. For the believer, he is the cornerstone of the foundation. For the believer, our entire life if our lives were a house, Christ would be the foundation, the cornerstone on which our lives are built. For those who reject him and those who do not obey the gospel, what is Jesus? He's a stone or a rock in the road over which they trip. Same Jesus, same message, same gospel, different response. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Turn there with me, if you will. Matthew 24, 9, the gospel is to be preached. You know, there are some people who get very discouraged because when they share the gospel and they do not see a response, they think they've failed. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as evangelists that I've got to do a good job of sharing the gospel because if I don't, and this person is not converted, they don't believe, it's a failure on my part. We have to understand that the command of Scripture is to go into all the world and what? 
preach the gospel. The results of the preaching of the gospel are not in our hands. They, it is not up to your skill to convert an unbelieving sinner. Because there's something else that is going on with the preaching of the gospel. This is the bitter that John is talking about in Revelation chapter 10. Look, listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Listen to verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Does Jesus say here there will be a mass worldwide conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ because of the preaching of the gospel? No. no. What does he say? As you take the gospel to all nations, what's going to happen to you, my disciples? What is going to happen to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? The context of Jesus's words here are not referring to a worldwide conversion, but rather a witness against. Who is the witness against? The persecutors of the church, the hateful nations, those who fall away or apostatize, the betrayers, the false prophets, the lawless, and the loveless. Jesus does not say to the disciples, all men you preach the gospel to will hear and believe. What he does say is that the message of the gospel must be preached into all the world as a what? A witness. God in his grace is taking away any and every excuse for unbelieving humanity here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 speaking about this contrast to the receptiveness of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What is, what is Paul saying? He's using a very simple analogy here. Christian, you smell. To some, you will smell nice. To others, you're going to stink. Now, he's not talking about personal hygiene here. So let's not let's not give the uh, enemy of the church a reason to uh, to talk bad about the church here regarding our cleanliness. That's not what he's talking about. Verse 16, to one a fragrance from death to death, to another a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What is he saying? The picture, the preaching of the gospel and of the cross to the believer is sweet. The message of the gospel is to those who believe is loved 
it's welcomed, it's rejoiced in. To the unbelieving, it stinks. It's detestable. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. Matthew Henry, regarding this passage, comments, he says, A believer's triumphs are all in Christ. To him be the praise and the glory of all. While the success of the, of the gospel, listen to this, while the success of the gospel is a good reason for a Christian's joy and rejoicing. By the way, pause the quote there for a second. Is there anything better than seeing an unbeliever come to Christ? Anything. As we live in this world, there is nothing that comes to mind that makes our hearts exalt in exuberance and joy than seeing a sinner converted to Christ. Matthew Henry says, it is good reason for a Christian's joy and rejoicing. In ancient triumphs, abundance of perfumes and sweet odors were used. So the name and salvation of Jesus as ointment poured out was a sweet savor diffused in every place. Unto some, the gospel is a savor of death unto death. They reject it to their ruin. Unto others, the gospel is a savor of life unto life, as it is quickened them at first when they were dead in trespasses and sin, so it makes them more lively and, and will end in eternal life. Verse 7. And he said, this is the angel, the first angel, he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. This is the gracious last chance warning of the gospel. And it brings up the question, who are you worshiping? The angel challenges the earth dweller with who they are worshiping. Remember, we talked about the worship of the beast, the exaltation of the state, and ultimately the self, in contrast to what they ought to be worshiping, who is the creator, Romans 1. But this is the last chance warning of the gospel. There is coming a time very soon, and hear me out on this, when you will cease to hear the gospel preached. There will be no room given for repentance as it will be exhausted. Revelation 22.10 has a curious statement about this. It says, um, John speaking, do not seal up the words of the prophecy. Well, this is the angel speaking to John, for the time is near. Listen to this. Let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What is he saying? Is he applauding sin and unholiness? No. What is he? What he's saying is it's done. You are what you are. The end of time is over. There is no more room to repent. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Verse 15 of Revelation 10, outside of the city gates are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves 
who practices falsehood. What is he saying? He's reminding us that there's coming a time when we are what we are. There will be no more opportunity to repent. And there's so many people who in the back of their minds, maybe even subconsciously think I can do what I want. And at the very last day, as I'm on my deathbed, I can repent and I can turn to Christ. First of all, what makes you think you'll want to? Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers. Genesis 7, this reminds us, I think, at least it did me as I was studying this, of Genesis 17. Or, or it's not Genesis 17, that's wrong. Um, Noah, I wrote that down wrong. Anyway, verse 15, they went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God commanded him. Did it, does the scripture say that Noah shut the door? No. Who shut the door? And the Lord shut him in. How frightening it would have been for all those mockers and scoffers who watched Noah carve and hammer and saw and build on that ark for years and years, making fun of them. And then the door shuts by itself. They don't see who shuts it. And then what happens? It starts to rain. Think about self-doubting at that point. The reality hits the earth dweller that the door is shut and there is no getting in. There was no back door. By the way, God didn't tell Noah to build the ark to North Carolina building code where you had another means of egress. There was one door and God shut it. And the picture in Revelation 10 is that there are gates to the heavenly city that are barred and protected by the Lord. Those that are outside cannot gain entrance. There is a last chance warning of the gospel here. No second chances. The second angel, verse 8, with a guarantee of judgment. This is just a very quick and simple statement. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. We talked at length about this last week. What is the picture here of the sexual immorality? Yeah, and, and what specifically? Idolatry, right? This is a picture of idolatry. She made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her idolatry. So this is the first of six mentions of the city of Babylon. What would the reader of the early church thought when they heard this and read this? I mean, we're, we're about to get into this in our, our study in 2 Kings and, and then in the, into Chronicles. But what is Babylon? Where was Daniel when the book of Daniel was written? He's in exile. When, when you hear the word Babylon, it conjures up world power that has enslaved and exiled the people of God. That's what comes to your mind when you read this. So what is being pictured here? Well, remember something. The book of Revelation 
teaches us truth by contrasting and comparing. What did we look at last week? Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? The dwelling place of God and the redeemed. God with us. I want you to see the contrast here. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, it says, And I saw the holy city. The holy city is symbolic of what? New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Listen, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What is that? What is the bride adorned for her husband? The church. The church, yes. The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So here we have the picture of the holy city, the New Jerusalem, Mount Zion, versus the unholy city. Well, what's the picture here? It's a contrast of churches. Look at Revelation 18, verses 1 through 3. And I'm not going to get into um, a, a deep study on Babylon. We'll get to that as we get further. But look at what Scripture says about Babylon in Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great. Listen to this. She has become a dwelling place for who? Demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. Now think about the contrast. We have Jerusalem, which is a dwelling place of who? God. Dwelling with his people. What is Babylon? It is a dwelling place of demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is almost a, a repeated verbatim statement from chapter 14 where we're studying. And the kings of the earth, by the way, the first beast, have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. We really have three characters here beside the dragon. Babylon is being introduced as, a, as another character or player in the pictures that we see in the book of Revelation playing out. The first beast is what? The perverted sword. The second beast is the false prophet who is encouraging and prodding people to worship the first beast. But what are the worshipers of the first beast? Babylon, the false church. There's a comparison here between the holy city and the unholy city. <clears throat> but this is the first mention in the book of Revelation of Babylon the Great. Where does that take us in scripture as we compare scripture with scripture? Daniel chapter 4, you remember this story well. I, I won't read the whole passage, but King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months, and this is a year after Daniel prophesies of what's about to happen. Dan Nebuchadnezzar gets a little lax and he forgets about the prophecy of Daniel, and he's walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. 
Verse 30, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Remember what happens? He gets put out the pasture, literally. And as soon as the words come out of his mouth, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you will eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So when you hear Babylon the Great, it takes us right back there to Nebuchadnezzar, who is exalting self. And what is the nature of the city of Babylon? Well, Revelation 16 or Revelation 17 and 18. I want to give you just two passages here as, as we prime the pump when we get to Revelation 17 several, several months from now. Revelation 17, and here's another reason why I believe this is talking about the false church. Revelation 7, 17, verse 1, and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now, here is a contrast. Take your minds back to Revelation 12 for just a minute. Revelation 12 gives us a picture of who? Remember the woman who gives birth to a son who is caught up to, to heaven? It's a picture of the church. And what happens to that woman after she gives birth? The dragon is ready, waiting to pounce on the seed of the woman. Okay? And then he realizes, I can't get him. So I'm going to turn my attention from the Lord Jesus to... Who? The woman. The church. And what happens to the woman? Do you remember in Revelation 12? She's caught up with wings of an eagle. Where? Taken into the wilderness where she is preserved, protected, and fed. Now look at Revelation 17. We're talking about the great prostitute seated on many waters. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and the wine of those of, of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And look at this, verse three, and he carried me away, where? In the spirit, where? Into a wilderness. Again, here's the picture John is giving us. When, when, we, when we think about the wilderness, the last reference we have to the wilderness is Revelation 12, 14. And when we look at Revelation 12, 14, we find the woman, the bride of Christ. Well, here, the woman, the bride of Christ is being compared and juxtaposed against the great prostitute. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and 10 horns. This is the first beast that we see in Revelation 13. But here, the picture of the beast is a woman riding on top of the, that beast. And the woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. She's attractive to the world. 
And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk. What is she drunk with? The blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You look down at verse 18, and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Revelation 18 and verse 4 gives a warning, and here is the call of the gospel. Then I heard another voice coming from heaven, verse 4, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins, and listen to, listen to the philosophy and the thought process of Babylon, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. What are her deeds, by the way? She is persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. She is, the scripture says, drunk with the wine or the blood of the saints. She is the source of persecution. And look at verse 7. And she glorified herself and lived in luxury. Does this sound familiar? Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. And she has glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. In mourning, I shall never see. So look, look, at, the, look at this comparison for a second. Who is the bride of Christ waiting for? Who is the church waiting for? Christ, Christ the bridegroom. What does she say? I don't need anybody. I'm not a widow. I don't need Jesus. Verse 8, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Look at verse 9, the third angel. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image... And receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Remember that there is accountability and culpability for receiving the mark. We talked about this in Revelation 13. These are no, those who know and actively suppress the truth in their deception. They are without excuse. Romans 1. We talked about the mark of the beast and, and the original Greek reads as compulsion under the semblance of choice. In other words, the beast causes the earth dweller through deception to want to desire the mark. It is a stamp of preservation for the earth dweller. While the world is looking for some physical application to the mark of the beast, they're already willingly owned. The earth dweller is taking refuge in the shadow of the beast. It is his God. So when we look at verses 10 and 11, it says he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented. The word tormented in the Greek is the word tortured. 
with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And their smoke, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. The worship of the beast results in the pouring out of the wrath of God and eternal punishment. This is the rejection of the creator substituted with creature worship. This is an allusion back, by the way, to the psalmist in Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. I want you to note here that hell is not some symbolic or imaginary place. It is the just and eternal wrath of God poured out on the sinner. It's now commonplace for so-called progressive Christians, as they call themselves, to teach that hell doesn't exist, or that if it does exist, it is not in the afterlife. Quote, hell is the experience of some people in varying degrees during this life. The ministry of Jesus and the task of the church is to rescue people from the hell they are living in, unquote. How do we do this, according to the progressive Christian? By the way, that's an oxymoron, meaning it can't be true. And of course, this has to be done through government intervention. Hint, beast worship, social gospel. This is a much more pleasant view of hell for the unrepentant sinner. But the problem is, is it's a lie. It does not agree with scripture, does it? We forget, and they forget, that one of the, the, the prominent teachings of the Lord Jesus as he preached, repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, is what? The doctrine of hell. I wanted, wanted to point something else out to, out to you. It says there is no rest for the wicked. Did you see that? As we look at that, it says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, they have no rest. Day or night, there is no Sabbath for them. But an eternal repayment of their own sin that can never amount to achieving a payoff. Think about that for a second. Have you ever thought, and, and when you think about the eternality of hell, it, it blows our minds, doesn't it? You think if if I am a great sinner, and a great sinner I am, surely if I spent a million years in hell, I would pay for my sin. And eventually, after spending that much time in hell, I'd be let out because I will have paid off my sin. What does it tell us? Two things about the greatness of our sin and the holiness of God when scripture tells us that there is no paying off of our sin. I can't spend a billion years in hell, a trillion years in hell, and pay off the debt of my sin. The scripture says the wages of sin is what? Yeah. Death. Think about the holiness of God. When you think about the time spent in hell for eternity, and we cannot satisfy the justice of God in a temporal sense in terms of years. 
There's no getting out on good behavior. Then the other thing, hell amplifies the greatness of our Savior. Think about that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Think of the debt he paid off for us. But here there is no Sabbath. And that's com contrasted to the last statement in, in the verses that we'll look at in just a second, where it talks about the, the righteous, the repentant, those who have the rest of Christ. There is no rest. There is unending torture for the unbelieving. The wrath of God is not a popular subject matter. And, and honestly, it's probably very rare in our context of our culture to hear pastors preach about it. But I will tell you this, if, if it is neglected in the church, it's because pastors don't love the people that they're preaching to. Because it's here. You do a study, and I would encourage you to do it. It's worth your time. Do a study on the statement, the wrath of God, or just the word wrath. Scripture is replete from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, talking about the wrath of God. Wouldn't it make sense to ask the question, why is God angry? That's a very important question, don't you think? Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look at verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. <clears throat> excuse me there's that word again think about the worship of the creator thanksgiving what's absent in the unbelieving being thankful to their creator but listen to this verse five you may be sure of this forget what the progressive christian pastor tells you here's god's word you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You're left out. The door is closed behind you. And if it were only that, and there are some that preach what's called annihilationism. You know what that is? Is that after you die, you cease to exist. That would be a blessing to the unbeliever, if he or she ceased to exist. That's not what the scripture teaches. Be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. They will not be with God in heaven. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The word for wrath in, in the Greek is the word orge. It comes from the verb orageo, orageo, meaning to team or to swell. And the word implies not a sudden outburst of, of anger. The scripture says, be angry and sin not. What is that really referring to? When you and I get angry, what typically happens when we get angry and sin? You ever lose your temper? 
not you guys. None of you would ever lose your temper. Losing your temper is a sudden outburst of anger that's in, exemplified in our frustration that I don't have control over this. You want to see a man lose his temper? You see a man who is not in control of himself. Scripture says we're to be self-controlled. We're not to be given to losing our temper. A challenge, isn't it? Because that horse wants to get out of the stall sometimes, doesn't it? Because people give us reasons. <laughs> but that's not the picture of the wrath here, of God losing his temper and lowering the boom. The picture of God's wrath here is this stored up, treasured up anger. And the picture in, in Revelation 14 is a picture of a well-fermented wine. You know, aged wine has the older the wine, the more value, the more good it is. Well, we're talking about wine that is aged from eternity. God's anger is aged. It is stored up. Jesus said in John chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Verse 36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Listen, and Jesus was not inclusive here, was he? The wrath of God remains what? On him. Paul, a quick sampler from Romans, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, listen to this, you are storing up wrath. For yourself on the day of wrath, when God's judgment, his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.8, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's ignored in our culture. It's ignored. But it's true. Regarding the subject matter of hell, Revelation 20 Verses 11 through 15, right after it talks about the, the eternal destiny of the dragon. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. This is talking about the resurrection of the dead at the return of the Lord Jesus. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second dead, the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, what happens? What happens? He was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus preached extensively on hell when he called sinners to repentance. In Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him. And who is this that we should fear? Christ. Yes, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Verse 12, here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God 
Again, the contrast between the obeyers of the Lamb and the lawless ones, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So here is a call, an encouragement for the seven churches and for us, persevere. The word endurance there in the Greek is the word upomone, and it comes from the, the Greek word that you're probably familiar with, hupomeno, which means to patiently remain under. So when we look at the judgment of the unbelieving, what is John's, what is, what is God's application for us as he gives this revelation to John? Well, here's the encouragement for the saints. You're not among those who are going to be judged. You have no reason to fear. But instead, persevere. Rest in Christ while we wait for full redemption. I want to close this morning with three truths to encourage us as we look at this is a is, is a tough passage. It's not pleasurable to think about the eternality of hell. It's not pleasurable to think about the wrath of God, but we ought to because Scripture gives it to us. The picture of the three angels reminds us that the wicked will not escape the just wrath of God. Have you ever been wronged? Have you ever been mistreated? Have you ever been abused? And there are Christians who have been martyred. And the thought that can easily come through our heads is there doesn't seem to be any justice. But think about what we just read. What is waiting on the unbelieving? What is waiting on the unrepentant? Hell. Is there anything? Let's just think about the, the, the most wronged you have ever been. And make a list. Is there anything you could possibly do to afford yourself justice to the perpetrators of those injustices on you? Why does Paul say in Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. What are we to do? Forgive. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but listen, leave it to the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The believer that rests in God for justice is a believer that is living by faith. You may be wrong. You may be mistreated. You may be persecuted. You may be martyred. Don't worry about retribution. Justice is in good hands. We don't need to worry that those abusers of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will get away with anything. Secondly, it says that our, our labors, look at the last statement of verse 13. Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. What are the unbelievers doing while the believer is resting? Tormented. Tormented. What's the scripture say? Day and night. There's no rest. The encouragement for us is that our labor is not in vain. Are you tired this morning? I confess. 
I'm tired. You ever get exhausted from your labor? We we tend to get discouraged, and 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 this is important for us to understand. If our labor is done for the applause of people, for people to see, for people to notice, for people to say thank you so much. What happens when none of that happens? If our motives are in the wrong place with our labor, don't we get jaded? Don't we get disgusted with people? Don't we get angry with them? Don't we start to think, you know what? I did all this work and what did I get for it? But the scripture reminds us that when our labor is done for who? The Lord, it has great reward. First Corinthians 15. Paul talks about the imperishable, the, the perishable putting on the imperishable at the resurrection of the Lord. In verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, O death, where is your victory? O, o death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, considering that, that our redemption is about to be complete, what does Paul say? Therefore, remember, always ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Because it is a transition of doctrine to action. Considering the doctrine of the fact that you are resurrected in the Lord Jesus Christ, your redemption is imminent. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We talk about good works, and, and the 1689 is excellent on what we call good works, chapter 16, verse 6. Uh, I won't read it, but but go there to take a look at it. Our works are good because they're done how? In Christ. Listen to what Spurgeon said about good works. He says, oh, how often have I thought to myself, now I have labored to preach God's word. I have not spared at all times before friends and foes and I hope I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God, the prince of preachers here. And yet, beloved, how many of those sermons, listen to this, how many of those sermons have not been good works at all because I had not an eye to my master's honor at the time or because there was not faith mixed with them, but I preached in a desponding, low, miserable frame. Or perhaps I had some natural aim, even in the winning of souls. For I have often feared, even when we rejoice to see souls converted, that we may have some evil motive, such as honoring ourselves, that the world may say, see how many souls are brought to God by him. And even when the church associates in doing holy works, have you not noticed that something, something selfish creeps in? a wish to exalt our own church, to glorify our own people, and to make ourselves mighty. I am sure, beloved, if you sit down and pull your good works to pieces, you will find so many bad stitches in them that they need to be all unstitched and done over again. There are so many spots and blurs about them that you need to have them washed in the blood of Christ to make them good for any. We lie to ourselves sometimes, don't we? My motives are pure. The work that we do in, through, and for Christ is good work. 
and it's not laboring in vain. We need not discourage in it. If what we do is done for Christ, it is well-pleasing to him. The third thing, and lastly, is death is not to be feared. Why? Because Scripture reminds the suffering saint that at death, the death of this body and this life, what follows it? Eternal rest. Mm -hmm. The realization of our Sabbath. We celebrate the Sabbath and are coming together to the Lord's table, which we will do in just a minute, as a foretaste of our eternal rest. Jesus said, as you gather for the Lord's table, do this in remembrance of me, because the next time I do it with you, my disciples will be where? In the kingdom. In other words, when your redemption is complete, we come to the Lord's table to be reminded of the fact that, that our redemption is coming. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight, and this is the offer of the gospel. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Babylon, the beast, they got it. They don't need rest. They've achieved perfection in their own works. For the believer, we rest in Christ because he is our Sabbath. He is our perfection. And someday soon, our eternal rest will be here. In light of that, every one of you, by the way, are getting older. I saw a friend yesterday. I saw a year ago, and he was much more gray. Well, what does that mean? The invariable truth about it is, is we're all one day closer to dying if the Lord doesn't come. And that's okay. Why? Because when we do, we will be in the presence of our Sabbath, capital S, who we will have eternal rest in. We need not fear death. And when we don't fear death, we can persevere in the face of it. We don't have to be afraid of those that can kill the body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warning of scripture. I pray, Lord, that there would not be any here this morning that don't hear it. Father, for the unbelieving that might be here listening this morning or maybe listening online, I pray, Lord, that you would wake them up. If you have so eternally decreed to do it, that you would give them life that they would repent and turn from their false worship. For us, Lord, you have called us to carry the gospel, preach the truth regardless of, of the response. We know some people are going to embrace the gospel because it's life, it's joy, it's rest from their labor. But for the bulk of the world, Father, the earth dweller, they will refuse the gospel. They will hate it. They will despise it. They will reject it. And they will also reject the messenger as well. We ask that you would give us conviction and faithfulness to be honest. Father, to love those that were just like us enough to tell them the truth. We ask for your help with this. And we do look forward, Lord, to the day of your return when our redemption will be complete. As we come to your table this morning, we ask that you will remind us of that. We, we celebrate your first advent, Lord. 
it should be a reminder to us that you are a God of covenant-keeping promise. And that just as sure as that baby came to be our Redeemer, you're coming back to judge this world. We can count on it. And we know there are consequences to your judgment for those who reject the gospel and will not obey the truth. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you keep your promises. We rest in that this morning. We ask, Lord, for those that are tired, that are weary, Lord, that we might look to you for the sustenance of our souls this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.